All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fucksters, what the fucknicks? What is happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. And uh, it's been exciting lately, hasn't it? <laughs> what does that even mean? How? Why am I opening like that? What am I talking about? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Brendan and I, my business partner and producer, got some good news. Edison Research is uh, a real thing. And this is the Podcast Consumer Tracking Report. Now, Brendan and I have been doing this show on our own for 12 years or so, right? Been about 12 years now. I, we, I wouldn't say we're, we're OGs, but we're close. Uh, we were there at the beginning when there was nothing. There was a few, there was some history, and there was a few and then us. And I believe that over time we helped define this medium podcasting. But as everything goes over time, you, you imagine that, well, there's a million podcasts. Who knows where we are in the big picture, but we keep doing consistent work and we keep you know, showing up for work and we keep evolving, folks. We keep evolving. But on the most listened to podcasts in 2020, United States Weekly Podcast Listens, we are number 20, which is fucking astounding. 12 years in, still doing top-notch work, still happy to be working and always engaged with our work, and it's showing up 20 out of the, I don't know whether there's 50 listed here, but we're, we're 20, and above us there's, you know, the regular customers, you know, the NPRs and the uh, New York Times, uh, and the, so, you know, Joe is up there at the top, but, you know, Joe's doing that thing. But I'll tell you, we were we were both pleasantly surprised and excited and self-congratulatory about this news. How long we've been doing it, what we've been doing, and the fact that it sticks and it's consistent and it's evolving. And we've been through a lot. But this was uh, this was exciting for us. So I thought I'd share that. Now, my guest today is Mark Harris, the writer of books, the journalist. He's written several books on film. Uh, Pictures at a Revolution is one that I just recently finished and I thought it was spectacular. It's uh, five movies and the birth of the new Hollywood. He also wrote a book called um, Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War. And he also wrote his new book, Mike Nichols, A Life, a huge Mike Nichols biography. And I was excited to talk to him because I dug into the book and it it just reignited my brain in so many ways. The other thing I want to share is that I'm starting to see results from the meditation. I have fought the idea of meditation for a long time. I still kind of fight it, but I do it. I generally do a guided med- meditation with the uh, Headspace app. This is not a paid advertising. It's just the one someone gave it to me for nothing, actually. But now I listen to the English guy. Okay, take a deep breath. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Eyes open, soft focus. Now get ready to lock down because we're going to fucking meditate this shit to death. 
We are going to fucking so deeply meditate that you're not even going to know your name when you get out of here. You're not even going to know what day it is. We're going to get so fucking deep into it. You're not even going to know if you're a, a man or a woman or a gerbil or a dog or a little piggy. Yeah, we're going to get so deep into it that you're going to tap into the big hum, the big frequency. You're going to be in the canyon of time, not knowing what God is or who you are, or whether or not anything is anything. That's where we're going with this. All right, now breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Now, won't you wank it? I'm sorry, it's a joke. It's a joke. You can do that after. Anyways, listen. I think what's happening is we never know the future, but we usually can plan. No one ever really knows what's going to happen, but usually you can hang your future thinking on some things you're looking forward to or some things you have to do, and that's gone because we don't know when we're going to be able to do things. I'm I'm not speaking for everybody, but I I believe that the dread of really never knowing what's going to happen in the future, which is sort of a mortality anxiety, but the dread of not knowing when we're going to actually be able to do anything outside of what we have to do today and tomorrow, which seemingly has broken into a series of patterns that just maintain our sanity. But the anxiety of not knowing, compounded by the other thing, the planning thing, I think is a lot. So what I've begun to notice about meditation I find that the the sitting, the guided meditation, the sitting with the breath, however you want to do it, the ability to kind of work that muscle, that mental muscle, to focus on the breath and be in the present, to let thoughts come and go, to not get too freaked out when you get distracted, but to really sort of sit mindfully and focus on the breath to the point where that's all you're doing is sort of engaging with your breath, that working that muscle enables you to almost instinctively get into the present when you begin to have anxiety or dread and it almost happens without you being cognizant because you've worked that muscle and that muscle is specifically to kind of not get lost in those thoughts now you have to decide for yourself whether you rather have a meditative brain or a brain that's on fire look if you like firefighting then you may prefer the burning brain um i I'm not sure I like firefighting. I've been doing it a lot of my life, but it turns out that like I'm not really fighting fires. I'm just sort of like um, kind of you know letting them burn, and then when they start to simmer down, I'll you know throw a little bit more stuff on there. But I find that the meditation enables you to kind of like I have a hard time compartmentalizing because one bad thought, if you have a hard time compartmentalizing, or if you're missing a small piece of your personality, you know one small negative thought or one bit of bad news or one kind of nugget, a little anxiety seedling can just grow fucking strangling vines all over your entire sense of being. If you get that meditation muscle going, you get that sort of mindful muscle going, you get that quieted down muscle going, you might have a little shot. You might have a little shot of compartmentalizing, of keeping things in perspective, of quieting the brain down, of getting into the present when necessary. You might be able to sort of dam up some of those neural pathways that kind of over fucking flood, you know, just kind of like stop them for a minute. Because, you know, when you have no control over the flood of, of fear, anxiety, dread, 
just I'm, I'm mixing metaphors. There's the brain on fire, then there's the the flood of bad thoughts. I guess they can happen simultaneously, right? No amount of water is going to put that fire out. It's just going to flood everything. So then you end up with a bunch of fucking moldy, soggy books and papers and toys from your past and pictures. They're all soggy and fucked up because you let it flood and it made your past look dark. And then the fire is the future. You got a flooded past with mold and in the future, nothing but flames. So meditation helps with that. And that was actually a guided meditation that I just did. Let's talk about movies. Mark Harris is going to be uh, talking to me. And this, the book he wrote, Pictures at a Revolution, is... See, it's been a long time since I read about film. And all of us, I think a lot of us who are interested or studied stuff, are watching a lot of movies right now. And I, for some reason, now that like some of the PTSD from my grief and recent trauma and the general trauma has sort of settled down, I, I find myself with this quiet time where I'm not you know, pounding my brain with stand-up and compulsively working on material, where I'm, I'm actually trying to take things in again in a way that runs a little deeper than just, get me out of now. Could somebody get me out of now? But I think so many of us have lost context that so much of what we put into our brains is to try to, you know, get us out of now, get us out of us, you know, distract us. But my depth of intellectual understanding is limited, and I don't always trust it because I don't think I'm that smart. It's just my nature. But reading this book, it, it really, this book, the one I read, I've read part of the Mike Nichols book, the new book, but he writes a lot about Nichols in Pictures of the Revolution. It focuses on the five films that were nominated for Best Picture in 1967. And through those films, he's able to analyze the cultural pulse of the nation, the politics of show business, the nature of each production, uh, you know, what went into it on a writing level, acting level, producing level, directing level, and put that into the context of the larger history of film and the history of show business and the business and the people who were involved. And the films were Bonnie and Clyde in the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, Dr. Doolittle and The Graduate. And through that, he's able to sort of consider and assess the films you know, for what they are uh, in context of culture and criticism, because he cites a lot of the critics, but also how that shift in the culture and in the politics of the culture you know, changed how movies were made, sold, and taken in. All levels working, all pistols operating. It's a real brain igniter. And in, in, in contextualizing these things, you know, you see the films differently. And I watched all the films again. And this is dealing with art, dealing with race, deals with gender, deals with age, deals. It, it's all there. And it's, you know, film is very rich like that. And I think what it speaks to in terms of my laziness as of late or my need to get out of the now or for just general distraction is that I think that cultural criticism, film criticism, art criticism, criticism in general, the deep stuff, not the review, not the this or that, uh, good or bad, thoughts on, sounds like, now trending, not that, but sort of true contextualized consideration of of art or culture is is a bit waning which is sad because those things are needed they're needed to sort of understand comprehend the cultural conversation and what is happening to slow it down to consider thoughtfully 
and intellectually and historically. A lot of that stuff is falling by the wayside. And after reading a book like uh, Mark Harris's, it's like it's so fucking important because it's very easy to get lazy and it's very easy to get shallow. And, you know, most people don't think too deeply about anything because everything's moving so fast. And even smart people have given up without knowing it. You know how you just go to Rotten Tomatoes Well, an 87. That's pretty good. How many reviews? A hundred. Let's watch that. But if you don't have anything in place to put things into context or to think for yourself, you know, you're just going to be citing other things. You're going to be referring to clickbait. You're going to be referring to something you heard. You're going to be comparing blindly. And that's going to sort of pass as thought for you. You know, we're volunteering for shallowness. You got to go deep, man. And that's what criticism can do. Whether you understand it or not, it'll take you deeper and make you understand that there is depth to be explored and i'm grateful for that i'm grateful for this guest and i'm i was excited to talk to him he's also married to tony kushner who's uh the probably the most brilliant living playwright uh that we have and uh it was kind of hard for me at the beginning because i was like so is like is tony just he's just in the other room just hanging out what do you guys what do you guys talk about like i it was hard for me <laughs> not not to do a bit of that. And I, and I did do a bit of it, to be honest with you. I did. So right now, this is um, Mark Harris that I'm about to talk to. And his new book is Mike Nichols, A Life. And you can get it wherever you get books. How you doing, Mark? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right, man. Where are you, in New York? I am. I'm in uh, Manhattan on the Upper West Side. In your apartment? Yep. Is Tony Kushner in the other room? <laughs> he is in the other room. <laughs> I, I I went and shut the door and said, don't come out while I'm doing this. <laughs> now, like, you know, he's you know, obviously one of the uh, the great playwrights, and you are one of the uh, great critics. You know, now you guys are spending an awfully lot of time together. Um what do you talk about? Is it mostly politics? Do you do you watch a movie and hammer it out, or is it just like about food? Uh, it's definitely not mostly <laughs> politics. I mean, we we scream at each other about what's in the news the way a lot of people do. Yeah, um, but there's a lot of a lot of food discussion, a lot of what's for dinner, <laughs> a, a lot of what are we going to do, um, yeah. and uh, and yeah, we watch tons of movies. I'm sort of the movie DJ, and he's the food guy. So so it it balances out nicely. And you know, we were both uh, stay at home writers basically before this all started. So it hasn't been that huge a, a change for us compared to a lot of other people. Yeah, I mean, you got me watching movies. I, I decided, you know, they sent me all the books, and I thought the one that I could tackle before I talked to you thoroughly was uh, Pictures at a Revolution. Oh, wow. Yeah. So well. I, I I read that whole book, and I'm very proud of myself that I finished a book. Thank you so much for reading it. <laughs> I, I'm, these days, I'm very proud of myself when I finish a book. I'm proud, I'm proud of myself when I buy one. That yeah. seems like a big accomplishment. Well, you know what the funny thing is, is this morning I'm thinking about your book and I'm thinking about movies and I'm talking to, I had a conversation with my agent yesterday about Warren Beatty, who he decided he's going to try to get on the podcast. And I just read so much about Beatty in your book. 
is that t- this morning I realized like, oh my God, I ha- I don't know where my copy of Empire of Their Own is by Neil Gabler. I, ne- I need the book about the Jews. Uh, you know, I need a new copy of that. So right before I got on, I bought a new copy of that. I, I can literally touch that book almost from, from where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that book. You know, I, oh, I it's love, great. Yeah, I love that book. And now there's a book I want to read about the Jews and uh, uh, creating comic books, the Marvel Universe and Stan Lee and that whole crew. Oh, you know, that new Stan Lee biography that's about to come out. Um, yeah. I, th- I think it's called True Believer. Um, that is a fantastic book. Just really? really, really worth your time. Yeah. So the new book that, you, uh, that you're out talking about, uh, this Mike Nichols book, Nichols, Mike Nichols, A Life. Like I read a lot about, you know, the, you know, obviously you wrote a lot about Mike Nichols in Pictures of the Revolution revolving around The Graduate and his New York theater days and everything. Now, what I want to know is, and I poked around in the new book as well, is that it seems like a, a quite a passion project to decide to write a 500 page book on Mike Nichols. <laughs> now, like, I, I know Mike Nichols is interesting, and I was very compelled by the stuff that you wrote in Pictures at the Revolution, and I begun, I had no idea about his background, about his Jewishness and non-Jewishness. And, but um, why, why that guy? Well, uh, I thought that, uh, I mean, it was a passion project, but I thought also I would never get bored while I was doing it because I really felt like in some ways I was writing about... Um, three full careers like right. a, a full a full movie career a full career at the same time directing theater and yeah. then the the 10 years preceding that where he was this kind of game-changing performing artist so it really did feel like i didn't know it was going to be quite as long when i started working on it but it felt like yeah this is going to be a long book it was a long complicated life but like were you able to see because i i noticed that the levels that you were operating at in pictures at the revolution and really addressing how Hollywood changed through these five movies, but you were able to tackle it on all the levels, you know, the levels of, uh, you know, cultural politics, uh, movie industry politics, you know, what it took to get the films made, uh, the actors, the scripts, the writing, the selling, the whole thing. And, you know, to me, it provided a, a great overview. It's sort of like, the, you know, I read Raging Bulls and Easy Riders, the Biskin book, which is OK. But this was like setting the stage for that. This is pre that. Now, I assume that, like, you also were able to thread through the Mike Nichols book, the arc of history that he represents. I, I think I was. I, I hope I was. I mean, it's a really different task because pictures of the revolution I had, you know, six or eight or ten major characters to play with, and I was kind of interweaving them through a pretty concentrated period of about five years. And and so this book, obviously, is one life through 83 years. I I realized I would have nothing to cut away to, which was a little scary. You know, it was... The the shape of the book was determined by the, the arc of his life. But I did feel I could get into the Chicago comedy scene in the 50s and New York nightclub life in the late 50s and 60s and Broadway in the mid 60s and Hollywood in the 70s. So I felt like, yeah, there's a lot of good cultural history and and background for me to play with here besides just Mike and his particular story. How much did you talk about Shelley Berman? Um, A little bit because that was a really, (laughs) you know, intense, uh, I I mean, that whole uh, kind of, 
boiling pot of Chicago comedy in the in the fifties when they were all really kind of inventing improv right. was really emotionally intense and particularly the the dynamic between Shelley Berman and Mike Nichols and Elaine May. I mean, Shelley Berman really wanted to be the third guy in a trio, and and he also really wanted to work with Elaine May. It's just about oh, every I know. Man Believe did, me, I, so. I I interviewed Shelley before he died. I drove to his house and sat there with him. Uh, he's you know he for some reason he had a, a large knife collection. Shelley Berman, wow. and and he said uh, he said that the only reason that he did a foam bit, which was half his bits, was because <laughs> Elaine May wouldn't do it with him. <laughs> he said he said that's how he came up with the phone bit is that he had planned those things to be two people but because Elaine May wouldn't do it cuz she was with Mike he had to do it on his own the phone bit well it sounded to me like there were so few women in the compass players and that whole scene that you know to get with uh, Elaine May meant that you had you know a chance to do a two character thing on stage and so everybody wanted her and Mike Nichols was pretty blunt about talking about the degree to which he kind of stiff armed Shelley Berman and said nope th- like this is she's mine you yeah. you can't go anywhere near Be- her believe me that's just one on the the, the large list of the reasons Shelley Berman is bitter yeah you can get, <laughs> you, he's passed away sadly but but uh, boy get him going about Bob Newhart there's no end to that one wow <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> these guys some of them don't get any happier as time goes on yeah, I don't think so. So you were able to, do, but you, I mean, you knew Mike Nichols, correct? I, I did in the last probably twelve or fourteen years of his life when he was in his seventies. Now, were you making notes for that then? I mean, has this <laughs> book been in the works that long? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I didn't. Uh, first of all, I don't think I would ever try to write a biography of someone who is alive. That uh-huh. that just seems like, I mean, biographies are already such a big mountain to climb, and and. I felt that Mike was figuratively looking over my shoulder, correcting me, amending me the whole time. If there had been someone literally there, that would have been too much. So I urged Mike a few times to write his autobiography, which he was not interested in doing. But I never thought of it until uh, after he passed away in 2014. And what do you think? Because I I know that in uh, Pictures at uh, Revolution, what do you think it was? Because he seemed to be kind of a... Uh, gifted in a very unique way around how he engaged with actors and you know what he expected both uh in theater and in film i mean what was it how did he change theater you know this was one of the hardest things for me to reconstruct in the book because of course i can't go back and see you know barefoot in the park in 1963 right and and when you read the play you think oh this is a sort of pretty typical comedy of its time, you know, uh, just in terms of the lines. And so I was really surprised to hear from so many people who had seen it that, no, 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 it wasn't that at all. It was something really new. Uh And the new thing that they said Mike brought to it was that uh, in between these very snappy, like one after another lines, he would find all these little gifts of realistic recognizable human behavior to give to the actors you know like so that they were saying these lines but what you were looking at was people sort of behaving the way people behave in the privacy of their own apartment and that i guess was really new and that was very mike like finding the the perfect little detail that's interesting because that's not really you know that's not a method thing 
that that's sort of a, a choice thing, and it's sort of a giving somebody something to do, right? And 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 something to do that somehow expresses who you are, really between the lines of dialogue or under the lines of dialogue. Um, I think as I mean, Mike did study with Lee Strasberg and and all of that, and he was interested in the method. But um, I think it more comes from his work with Elaine May, um, and and from all those sketches where they kind of figured out as performers um, w- that they could do things, uh, even things that were at odds with what they were saying, that would instantly connect with the audience and and make people in the audience say, "Oh, I that that's just like me." I get, yeah. I, I mean, it's, I don't think people fully realize just how huge uh, uh, a comedy act they were, you know, Nichols and May. And it came out. The Compass Players eventually became Second City, right? Or parts of it, right? I th- or there's some kind of complicated split off where part of it became Second City, and you know. But yes, wasn't Alan Arkin and Ed Asner involved as well in the Compass Players? Yeah, Ed Asner was actually the first, he was a couple of years older than Mike, and he was the first actor that Mike ever directed, as, as he was an undergrad at the University of Chicago, and, and uh, he directed Ed Asner in, in a very short uh, play. That was Mike's first directing. <laughs> I bet you he remembers that, this whole life. Uh, he, he, he talked about it. Uh, he, he <laughs> you know. Yeah, Ed's a lot. I'm sure he always was. He was great. He, I said, what, did, what do you remember about Mike? And he said, um, he was very effeminate, but uh, he was the kind of effeminate guy who would steal your girl when you weren't looking. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then he talked about 9-11 conspiracies for an hour. <laughs> and so, but, oh, so you're able to interview him? Yeah, yeah, that was a thrill. Who else I did mean, you talk to the old timers for the book? Oh, my gosh. Well, from that period... Definitely the most important person I talked to was Elaine May. I mean, she, she was hugely responsible for helping me understand exactly what their partnership was and how they worked together. And she had amazing stories to tell about, like how the first time they got up on stage and, and flopped at yeah. like the worst sketch they ever did and, and why it was such a failure and what they learned from it. Huh. So, so, you know, of course, a lot of those people from the, the early 1950s when this all started are are gone. I talked to, um, before he passed away, David Shepard, who was um, one of the founders of The Compass and, and was already struggling with um, the beginning of uh, dementia when mm. we talked. But he really wanted to talk. And, and, you know, you find your way in interviews like that. You, you, he he yes. found his way to some memories. Well, you know, it's interesting because Elaine is still very vital and still working. I saw her in that uh the uh, the a play that revival of that um... right the, the the Waverly Gallery yeah 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 Elaine May was fantastic obviously like sharp as a tack in in the interview and just had really great memories to share well that's interesting like how like y- y- you know so much of this because that was the thing that I got when I was reading you know the the pictures at the Revolution book was that. You know, I grew up in, you know, you and I are really the same age, right? So right. we're like three months apart, literally. I'm September 27th, 1963. Right, and, I'm, and I'm November 25th, right during um, JFK's funeral. Yeah, right there. I, I got in right under the wire, then they, they got him. <laughs> but uh, so 
like I grew up like our generation. It's weird because we're really not boomers. We're maybe the tail end of it. But we grew up in sort of the crashing wave of the 60s and into the 70s. So if you gravitated towards, you know, what the 60s and 70s defined as a young person, which I did, you know, film was very interesting to me. So I studied a bit of film in college. Did you? I did, yeah. And I I probably had the same experience you did, which is it, it's really weird being exactly our age because yeah. you, you had to kind of choose to – like for for me, I, I wanted to be a part of the generation that was slightly older than, right, than we right, are. Exactly. Um, so, so that's what I jumped toward, yeah. Because they seemed the smartest and the funniest and the, the most engaged. It seemed like so many things were defined. Well, I mean, if you, even if you think about rock and roll starting in 1957, which was our parents, that like, you know, the, the whole idea of, of modern art, film criticism, uh, you, you know, taking risks uh, creatively it all happened just before we became conscious of what what was going on, right? So, like, there was this idea, there was definitely a feeling of, like, we missed the whole thing. Exactly. It's a strange feeling all your cultural life to feel that you came in a little too late, that that, that all the action was just behind you. Right. And, and, you know, I had older cousins growing up, and they always seemed to be really plugged into, you know, what was really going on that I wasn't old enough to see or wasn't old enough to do, and, and that just endlessly of course made me want to see it even more where'd you grow up i grew up in new york city oh so you're like a new york kid i am a new york kid yeah that's amazing why how, how'd that happen what were your parents doing my dad was a lawyer and he was a native new yorker he grew ah. up in the city and my my mother was uh she grew up in upstate new york in syracuse Okay, um, and and came to the city to work as a as a doctor at St. Vincent's Hospital. So so uh, that that was my uh, childhood: a lawyer and a doctor. Uh, he was Jewish; she was Catholic. So it's fascinating that, to me. You know, you're the second guy in a week I talked to who grew up in New York. I just talked to Ozza uh, uh, Jacobs. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. His parents were, you know, and still are, and were. You know, you know, kind of like edgy experimental film fe- makers. Well, I always felt like real New Yorkers were the people who came to the city and chose it. You know, I always felt like I landed here kind of and didn't earn it somehow. But, um, but yeah, I've lived here all my life and uh, I still really love it. You didn't earn it. it was, no, yeah, came came from where? Like the old country? <laughs> that was that was my grandparents. Yeah, but, you know. Uh, yeah, they, they did the work, you know, and yeah. I, I, I got the benefit. But so, but so you grew up like in, in all that culture, that, that's the, that must've been amazing. Cause you had access, whatever you may have been jealous of, you know, like, it's like, I was talking to Aza about his parents and, you know, like, and how he, you know, they, he would go, they would go like, look at the, these like weird film festivals at the museum of modern art. The one thing that you got when you grow up in New York is you have access to all of that. I remember going to the Museum of Film and Broadcasting. Do you remember what we had to do to watch film clips, you know, when we were interested back in the day? Oh, so much work, so much work. And if you wanted to see an old movie, like, uncut and without commercials, you just had to, like, wait until it hit one of the revival theaters and then go, yeah. you know? Yeah, and that was, like, what was fascinating about reading the pictures at, at a revolution was that, you know, the, I had no idea about any of that, about how long they kept films in the movie houses and they would wait like a year. They they just let movies play like a year to see if it would make money. Right. I, I read um, old issues of Variety in The Hollywood Reporter from that time. And the first time I saw this, I thought it was a joke. But they, they, they would say things like, 
you know, this week, uh, in the heat of the night, hit the sixth and seventh run circuit of movie theaters. And there are apparently like nine circuits of theaters across the country, and movies would play sometimes for two years. And you, Amazing. And you, and you learned all that when you were writing that? Yeah, I did not know that uh, before, I, before I wrote the book. Let me ask you this. What, why doesn't somebody make a movie about the making of Dr. Doolittle? <laughs> I would rather see a movie about that than another remake of Dr. Doolittle. I think it would be a lot more fun. After I read your book, I don't even know why they would make a remake of a disaster. Like, it was categorically <laughs> a disaster. I didn't know. I mean, I saw it when I was a kid. I thought it was all right. I can still probably remember two of the songs. But... But but it was like uh, from everything you wrote, it was a disaster. And the making of it just seems fucking hilarious. I mean, like, how could you not make that movie to you know give it the uh, the treatment? Like, um, was that great? That great satire that Ben Stiller did, the war movie. Uh, oh, oh tro- Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder. Like, d- treat it like that. You know, when I was working on that book, the only time I had to stop my research uh, was about rex harrison because i thought uh, the stuff i'm finding out is so bad that i have to go hunt around for people who knew him to see if anybody has a good thing to say and i I tried i tried and i i I found a couple of people who who said well when are you writing about and i said 1967 and they said no no he was a monster (laughs) like if you were writing about the 50s or the 40s there he was still a decent human being but but not by then wow so it's so funny because while I was reading it, I interviewed Jodie Foster, who has experience and memories with Stanley Kramer, and also like her mother worked for Jacobs for um, wow, really? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, her mother, like you know, when he was still a pu- publicist, her her mother was in publicity. What was his name? Arthur Jacobs. Arthur Jacobs. Yeah, yeah. And he seemed like a character. Oh yeah, I mean. It- Again, like died long before I even yeah. imagined the the book, but but really one of those great kind of what makes Sammy run, you know. I'll, I'm going to hustle and pull this thing together, you know, just on scotch tape and a prayer, and and you know, and yeah. making this insane movie. Yeah, and he made a lot. He did a lot of stuff. A lot of those guys. Like, and I watched I watched all the movies again, except for Doctor Doolittle, which I guess I should. And I've seen The Graduate so many times that I didn't watch it uh, again. But I wanted to watch. Um, I, you know, I've watched Catch Twenty Two, Carnal Knowledge, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I imagine you cover uh, uh, pretty thoroughly in the book. Definitely, because you cover Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf pretty well because in in Pictures at the Revolution because it happened before The Graduate, but. You know, it seems to me that, like, the vision that Nichols had, you know, certainly for Catch-22, like, now, now, how did he, what do you think of that movie in terms of, did that get away from him, or was that exactly what he was trying to do? Well, Catch-22 was the first time um, that he really had absolute power. I mean, it, it was the first movie he made after the success of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, so he had as much money as he wanted, which was more than the budget. He of the hired everyone movies. in Hollywood to be in it. Right. And crazy huge cast from Alan Arkin and... Um, Wasn't Orson Welles in it? Or Orson Welles is in it. And gave him like two weeks of absolute misery on the set, uh-huh. uh, according to everyone who worked with Orson Welles. And um, the shoot took forever. It was in Mexico. It was in Italy. It was in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, I, I think that... Mike, uh, in later years, kind of went back and forth between finding things to like in the movie and just feeling that he hadn't cracked it. That that um, 
I mean, it was hard for him to separate the experience of the final product from the incredibly long ordeal of making it. And then sort of the worst thing that could possibly happen happened, which is he finally finishes it. They're three months from opening and MASH opens. And like the moment Mike Nichols saw MASH, he thought, oh, my movie's dead. I, I mean, that this is the movie about another war but really about Vietnam that everyone is going to want to see and this is the kind of loose improvisatory uh seat pants style that I should have gone for you know yeah because like I don't know what the what his choice was I mean I imagine that the the weight of you know how Fellini saw things must have been on him to some degree because it was really a a surrealistic you know uh disconnected film i mean there's a lot of great parts to it and i know the novel's difficult but there's no way that movie came together no and fellini you're absolutely right was really on his mind right i mean you know he thought eight and a half for a long time was the best movie ever made and he wanted to go to italy because you know he could he could do fellini-esque sequences there you know he just he he never buck henry who wrote the movie later said that he thought the big mistake was that Catch-22 is all about attitudes and Mike was all about behavior and he couldn't find any human behavior to put in that movie. Kind of wow. an interesting theory. Well, that's interesting seeing that, you know, what we were talking about earlier was that was really the the new thing he brought to theater was exactly that. Right. And somehow it, it, it got away from him in that movie, probably because... He got lost in, you know, just the expanse and expense of it. Like, it, yeah, it's hard to find humanity when you can do whatever you want with major movie stars. Right. And when you're <laughs> crashing planes and, and blowing up boxes <laughs> of dynamite and, you yeah. know, it, like Mike was never a huge fan of filming um, outdoors or action sequences like that was not his comfort zone. And and uh the Catch Twenty Two was the first time he really pushed himself there, and I, I don't think it was a, a a happy experience for him particularly. It's a bizarre movie, and Carnal Knowledge I don't think is talked about enough because I watched that recently, and it's a great movie. I love it. I love it too. I, I, I mean, I think if that movie came out right now, it would be in some ways as shocking as it was fifty years ago. Oh, just uh, for that last scene, and that was also a very Mike thing. Like he said over and over again, if you if you do something big, that's like a big public failure, which Catch Twenty Two was. Yeah. The best thing you can do is go right into something small that means something to you that you don't have uh, big commercial expectations for that you just want to do because you love the people or love the material, and that's that's how he got to carnal knowledge did it do well it did do well i mean it sort of turned out you know it it, it was a big commercial success and incredibly controversial and um was it really because yeah of the sex? I, yeah there was even an obscenity trial um uh that that went to the supreme court uh which actually like had to sit down and watch carnal knowledge and rule that it was not obscene um oh. so uh you know, it wasn't it wasn't the quiet little movie that that Mike thought he was going to make after Catch Twenty Two. It was a big, noisy little movie that he made. Isn't um, it? Those fights. It's interesting that those fights were taking place. What year was that? Like seventy one, seventy. It was seventy one, and it was right around the time that um, porn was going mainstream. And obviously, sure. Catch uh, Carnal Knowledge is not porn, but but you know, it was it was 
right in the thick of those fights of what can you show in a movie theater? What's what's okay to oh, show? Oh, so on you're screen? okay. You're, so you're saying it's just shy of of like Deep Throat showing right. in movie theaters. Exactly. A couple of years later, I think actually by the time the the Supreme Court resolved the carnal knowledge mm. case, Deep Throat was open in theaters and arguably r- ruined culture forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, now now we you know the yeah the, that's another question about not about porn but like you know in reading the books and in talking to you you know and your attention that you pay to critics of the past and when I studied film like you know these this idea that there were these feuds between like Andrew Saris and and Pauline Kael and that there was there was like weight to them and you know the passing of the guard of the old dude at the New York Times and how that affected you know the run of a movie you know the importance of criticism both you know art criticism cultural criticism what did it it obviously carried a lot of weight at another time it really did. I mean, there were, and you know, people talk about critics as as gatekeepers now, but now I don't really think there are uh, gatekeepers like that. But back then, when there were so few critics, and when you know, like I remember growing up, my parents got Time magazine and Life magazine every week, right? And if if those magazines gave a movie a good review, and if it got a good review in the New York Times, yeah. They would want to go see it. And if they didn't, if everything got bad reviews, that movie was off the list. There was almost nothing that would change their minds. That's interesting. So that, again, speaks to uh, the loss of, of of monopoly and intimacy within the media landscape. That you know, during, when there, It was a time where you, know, you had three networks and public TV, and then you had you know, a few large magazines. Really, most of the country was on the same pages give or take and the same information was coming in pretty much yeah Yeah. i mean the funny thing is what what they weren't on the same page about was movies didn't open in three or four thousand theaters at once they 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 would have weird distribution patterns where one movie would open in los angeles and then sort of roll across the country and eventually get to new york one would open you know in new york and then chicago and then boston and then los angeles so so there wasn't this big like all at once here's the movie moment but on the other hand, movies stayed in theaters for so long that you really did get to have an ongoing conversation. Well, yeah, and everybody wasn't connected. You know, you had to write a letter to somebody to tell them to see a movie, and or make right. a, you know what I mean, or make a long distance call. So the the actual pace of life was extraordinarily slower, and. And you could, I, well, that makes sense. That's why you could run a movie for two years because you could open it up in an area and, you know, no one else could see it. And the information they got about it would just be a long tease. And then you just sort of wait around until eventually maybe it got to your theater. There was no, no other options. Right. right. Um, and, and if you wanted to see the movie the way you were supposed to see it, you did have to see it in the theater because it wasn't like there was cable. I mean, you, right. you, you know, it, it would get on network tv eventually but it would be chopped up for length and chopped up for content so this was your chance like you had to go to the theater well, it's so like in terms of like are there like let's talk about it. like you know i've read andrew saris i've read some pauline kale I, I did a history of cinema class and you know I, I i really think that you framed a lot of the stuff not just around you know mike nichols and the influence of the french new wave or european movies coming into this country in the 60s and the influence they had in that book i'm sure you talked about it in the mike nichols book that you know that there was 
the context you created in pictures at the revolution really you know reframed my entire understanding of a lot about a lot about movies in, in general wow and you know and i approach movies i'm you know, randomly intelligent i wouldn't call myself an intellectual you know I, I i have put a lot of stuff in my brain uh but i like to know that i'm thinking along the same lines but i don't know that i ever would have seen bonnie and clyde as you know for most practical purposes a european movie uh in terms of the way it was um, conceived, and that was a, a little bit of news to me when I researched it. How how much French movie making, in particular, was on the minds of all the people who made Bonnie and Clyde, like over four years before they made it. Oh yeah, and the whole journey of those writers and that script and everybody involved—it was all very fascinating to me. But I mean, do you feel like because back then when you talk about Pauline Kael, you talk about Sarah, you talk about who was the guy that wrote for the Times, the old timer? Oh, Bosley Crowther. Yeah, that they weren't just, these were critics. You know, that, that obviously there's a difference between a movie review and criticism, right? And right. You know, and the, it seems that there are, there may be plenty of critics out there, but the outlets are so spread out. How do you find them? And now, you know, you're really dealing with something that seems to be a byproduct of how we live now is that most people look at an aggregate. You're going to look at Rotten Tomatoes, got an 85 120 reviews. All right, I'll take a look at that movie. Now, what have we lost? Well, it, it's a hard thing because, you know, you, you go back to 1967 and you see Pauline Kael not just writing about Bonnie and Clyde, but writing 9,000 words about Bonnie and Clyde. And then on the other hand, you have Bosley Crowther, the, the New York Times guy, who literally said that he thought his his um, role was to be sort of a, a pastor telling his flock what was what was suitable for them. And I don't think you'd want to go back to that, certainly. Um, but and I think there are, you know, there's always um, the possibility of an interesting conversation being sparked on social media about a particular movie. But I think one thing we've lost is. Time. I mean, a movie has such a short window to make an imprint in any kind of public discussion. And if it doesn't, it doesn't get 15 or 20 weeks in the theater to build word of mouth. But doesn't, but isn't know? that part of the problem, Mark, that like, you know, that public discussion moves at such a pace and that everybody is forced into the position of an almost kind of aggravated passive engagement. I mean, unless you stop the clock for yourself to process something, it's just going to go away. I think that's really true. And, and people are already coming up with kind of, I'm always fascinated when I ask people who like movies, do you keep lists of movies that you read about that you want to see? And so many of them say, oh, yeah, I have this whole document on my laptop. Because there's kind of, I think under that is the sense that if you don't grab this title and write it down, you will lose it. The The, the noise machine will move on before you even blink. Right. And um, I mean, I do that all the time. I write down movies I want to see because I know that in three days, uh, everything will be focused on something else. And, and 
you know. And that's the same with everything. I mean, it's really sort of this weird problem, and it and and it seems like the problem is happening directly to our minds. It seems like the the events that happen in the in the world, like somebody spent you know four years making that movie, it released, it goes away, but in our mind, it's sort of like, oh, I heard that, I heard about it, was it any good? I think I saw a thing, and then it, you know you forget about it, right? But it happens with politics too. I'm noticing that you know that we've we've all learned how to dismiss trolls, and we've all sort of learned how to you know, sort of try to rank in, intuitively what's amateur and what isn't. And I think in that process of filtering, uh, you know, everything just sort of like it gets, it's sort of like, ah, uh, you, you don't want to deal with it. You know, once it's behind us, you just don't want to deal with it. What I'm getting at is that as somebody who writes about film in a thoughtful way and takes the time to do the investigation, is criticism still necessary in your mind? And who is it necessary for? Well, I think criticism, I'm not going to say necessary, but I will certainly say useful because I think that if you take away all criticism and all you have left is um, a kind of hierarchy of marketing where movies that have enough money are the only movies that get attention, that's a problem. But someone was talking to me the other day and we were talking about uh, this movie that I really love called um, Nomadland that uh, is... is I got to see that. I I have it. I have the screener. You liked it? I, I loved it. I really loved it. And this person said to me, oh, I'm so sorry I missed it. And <laughs> I said, you, you didn't miss it. Um, it hasn't opened yet. Yeah. And, and it's not streaming yet. And they said, oh, yeah, but I, I feel like I read so much about it from critics in like September and October, and then it just kind of went away. And so one thing I, ha- I, I think critics are going to have to grapple with is you've got to get on a timetable that m- more conforms to how real people can see movies. I thought you, know? you were going to say, like, the next part of that sentence was like, I'm so sorry I missed it. You didn't miss it. And they said, uh, I will. I'll, I'll miss it. <laughs> <laughs> I plan to miss it. You know? Yeah, but it's like, I understand now the impulse to be first out with a reaction or an opinion. But if you're first out uh, on something that um, people can't see for months and you sort of burn yourself out on the topic by the time the actual movie rolls around and is available... Who are you serving? I think that's a question that a lot of critics are grappling with right now. Yeah. Who are you serving? Yeah. I And, and also, like, you know, and I think in the time, like, I started to think about just randomly before I talked to you, because I, I, I'm trying to pull it all together for myself, that, you know, another part of the layer of discussion is sort of... You know, it was the struggle for photography to define itself as an art. That once everybody could have a camera, you know, how do you determine the intention, right? So... Now we live in a world, really, where everyone is equipped to do just about anything. And production values are sort of the same. Right now, I just did, I did The Tonight Show from my backyard. So, you know, that, and that, we're never putting that back in the bottle. I mean, that, that's... I don't think so. No. Yeah, I think that's here to stay. Like what we're doing right now. So, like, how does that fall into the conversation? Like, how do you determine the integrity of something, of a piece of art, as a, you know, as a film, specifically? it's too big a question it well it's such a hard question because it connects to this thing that i'm grappling with and i'm sure you are and a lot of people which is what is like we keep talking about after this you know after the pandemic after things go back to normal but things aren't going to really go back to normal are they no no i talked about that yesterday yeah we're we're going forward to something that will have some more normal elements than what we're living now, but some things are 
changing and are going to stay changed. And I don't think we've begun to realize necessarily what that means for movies and for how we see movies and for how we talk about movies and get the word out about movies. Yeah, because everything's going to happen at the same frequency that, you know, the outlet, the, the portal through which we watch is leveled. You know, there's no differentiation. I mean, you know, you talk about, especially in the books and, you know, premieres and going to movies. I mean, that was already starting to taper off. But, you know, sort of the, you know, you entered that world. Like, I'm going out to do this, to see this thing. And now everything happens in the exact same mode or medium or format. Like, everything's coming through whatever size screen you have in your house or if you watch on your phone, on the plane, whatever the fuck it is. So, I mean... I guess having to wrangle as a critic or as somebody who is dealing with criticism, you know, what does that mean? What is what does that mean for contextualizing this stuff? You know, I mean, every every critic I know wants to get the word out to people about movies they love. Like, okay, good good critics, bad critics. I think that's one thing they all have in common that 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 they genuinely like telling people, oh, I saw something and it's fantastic. You have to see it. But how you do that and how you get heard above what you just said, which is the, everything being at the same frequency. Yeah. I don't think we have begun to figure out an answer to that yet. It's, I don't know. Really I, I, I don't puzzling. know. If there, yeah, I don't know if there is an answer and I don't know if it's good or bad, really. Like, you know, I, you, you know, I, I, I mean, I've adapted. I think you and I are like just under the wire on somehow being able to you know, figure out how not to have an AOL screen name anymore, you know? <laughs> right. We're, we're, we're the oldest of the people who have cracked it. <laughs> right, right. Or you could just sign up for Gmail. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know where, like, I, I guess I'm, I, I, may, I am nostalgic for when we had fewer choices and I'm nostalgic for when there were fewer voices. <laughs> and it, I don't know if that makes me a bad person or not. I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's hard because, you know, I look at a lot of um, really great indie work. Yeah. Um, and and I think so much of this wouldn't have gotten made before, you know? Absolutely. It would be so no, hard to get these movies made. Yes. So, um, and yet it's really frustrating because I, I want to tell people about these movies. And every time, 100%, the first thing people ask me is, where can I find it? And it's so puzzling to me that we don't have, like the easiest possible system to tell people how to see a great small movie. You know, that should be at your fingertips. It shouldn't take nearly as much Googling as, as, as it does. You know, you can't find the original Heartbreak Kid. It's not streaming. You have to go find a copy on YouTube. Uh, you can't find Silkwood, one of Mike Nichols's best movies. It's great not movie. streaming anywhere because really? of some weird legal problem um, about who owns it. So it can come up uh, surprisingly with big movies like that. That's a great movie. I love it. I love it. And I, I want to be able to uh, tell people to see it without having to say to them first, well, buy a Blu-ray player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's step one. Um, you know who's great in that? Craig T. Nelson. He's fantastic. It's he's crazy. really, really good. Right. So I, I guess like, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound older or close-minded because I think you're right. I think that the way things have broken open that you know the the number of different types of voices and the number of like if you think about what you were writing about in the in the early 60s in terms of the the uh international cinema you know having it was inaccessible 
you know, until the mid '60s in in this right. country, that now you know the the sort of global nature of what we're able to take in, you know, almost immediately. You know, I think there's a, a natural sort of shallow conde- condescension uh, to the tone of culture uh, in general, and it's reactive and entitled and and abusive. That you know, I think a lot of thoughtful stuff gets lost. How how do you? find the, the space and time to take in? How do you know what the fuck is important? I mean, I, I sort of feel like we all have to do our bit. I mean, yeah. I'm, like twi- I'm on Twitter like most journalists sure. I know. And, and you know, the I feel like the one thing I can do is when I see something that I really like, especially a small movie or a small TV show, if I say, hey, watch this, and, and try to come up with a really short way of saying why it's great and why I think you should watch it, you know, you just hope that maybe that will rise above the sea of noise at that moment. And yeah, because I think connect the, to a few people. The one thing we're finding, though, like really this idea of, you know, not just the, not necessarily the free market, but that, you know, if everybody has access to expression, expressing themselves that somehow or another, you know, the cream will rise to the top that I really think that is not always true. I, I think a lot of garbage floats to the top and it's promoted heavily and uh, it takes over the conversation. Right. I mean, money is a, a, still a huge finger on the scale. So yeah. so it's not like the democratization of of social media communication has led to some beautifully level playing field where where only the good stuff wins that does not happen yeah you know? and and then also you you're up against the 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 bitterness of the talentless in ways <laughs> <laughs> that's the other problem about how do you guys talk about it you and tony or even you with other people about the sort of the nature of the attack on celebrity culture and and the arts in general as as being you know uh, somehow uh, perverted or 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 just useless. I feel like there's this. I mean, I'm used to that from the political right. You know, yeah. all that kind of complaining about Holly weird and and Hollywood is like a den of of uh, bad morals and bad values. But but there is also this strain on the left that that sort of views art and artists and, and the makers of pop culture is fundamentally unserious and, and um, corporate, uh, which is, you know, uh, the word that can be used to just cover a whole variety of or, sins. Or, or and, as sometimes I've thought of it and have to sort of struggle with myself as, as being a distraction. Right, right. I mean, there and, and you know, I get the argument that there's like um, – so much going on in the world. How can how can we devote any bandwidth to uh, movies and and television and pop culture? But if if we really get to a place where, you know, we decide that um, art is completely expendable and pop culture is completely expendable because things are just too bad, I mean that that would be just absolutely dire. I don't I don't believe it as an argument ever. You know. I think oh, because we would no longer be able to see ourselves. Right, right. I mean, we 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 turn to to people who make movies and books we love to to have little aspects of ourselves and of the world explained to us and shown to us in a new way. How can that ever be like uh, considered a luxury option? To me, that's essential. Well, yeah, it's like theater. It's like you know, and it's like the overused uh, idea of storytelling. Like I don't know when that that word became so prevalent. <laughs> Right. But, but 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 it is true that like even with um, your book, like, you know, even going back, 
you know, to uh, to those movies that you wrote about or even thinking about Mike Nichols or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that, you know, there is even because of the timestamp on them, you realize that there was a whole other way of perceiving then that that has gotten lost. You know, there was a you know, the idea that these guys sweated over strips of film to put them together. You know, these these decisions that were making the collaborative process in a way that wasn't completely polluted uh, by marketing. Um, yet, although you, right. you, you, I mean, you were able to through the the sort of veins of all those movies you captured, you saw all levels of it, you know, and and also the the kind of mixture of old Hollywood and new Hollywood, and you know what acting meant and what how how people weighed scripts. And I think the biggest threat to what we're talking about and to criticism in general is that things happen so quickly. We're all operating in a certain amount of anxiety, paralysis, and PTSD that we only engage passively and things just keep hitting us and keep hitting us that, you know, and and it creates a cultural shallowness that if you don't fight personally to, you know, go deeper, you know, it's, it's a trouble for the entire culture. Yeah. I think, I think that's a hard, it's a hard ask for people though, to say like, go exploring. Cause I get like, you hear about a movie, you want to see it, you do the work to figure out um, where you can stream it or whatever. But but to go also, like, it can be really rewarding to just go put yourself in the atmosphere of a place like the Criterion Channel and say, I'm just going to yeah. see where where my mind takes me, you know, and not be afraid, you know. I mean, I always say to people, you can always turn it off. Like, if you don't like it, stop and watch another movie. But But... Go go try something. But it's interesting know? to see the courage of, you know, as a critic, like, to, you know, to see the courage of filmmakers, you know, from the past that, you know, that, you know, influence independent film now. And, that, and to realize that all mainstream product movies, most of them for many years and to this day, you know, require closure and simplicity and compelling uh, 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 but maybe stupid stories. If you're going to sell a movie and the reason there's so many cowardly, you know, hits is that's really the business of movies so when you talk about bonnie and clyde of the graduate and you see like well these were you know outliers i mean it was a miracle that that things happened because it was really a populist movement of young people to sort of shift the 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 focus of films at that time right and the critics right I, i mean the only movie of those five that was not going against the grain of what was happening was Doctor Doolittle right? Like that that was mainstream Hollywood business, and everything else was a, a little bit of a push or a big push towards something different. But yeah, you know, but I think the the weird thing that I can't tell, you know, by we're talking like for me, you know, I there's still things that I need to reckon with as as who I am that I never quite understood that I can keep going back to, you know, to to sort of go deeper within it. Like I could never wrap my brain around Fastbender, and then you got the Criterion Channel, and I'm like, well, well, we'll just try, you know, just start looking at things. Like I knew that Veronica Voss had a profound effect on me when I was younger, but I didn't think I got it. And now, like you know, I can contextualize everything. I'm older. I can you know read a little bit about it, and then watch that trilogy. What is it, Veronica Voss, Lola, and uh, Marriage of Maria Braun? Right, and, yeah. and and kind of put it into the context of of Germany and his career, and but that's me. You know, I'm like I can't tell anyone to do that, and I'm not trying to be better than anyone else to, anyone else to do that. But for me, the art of film demands me to read people like you, and also reengage with the work and 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 see why it's relevant as an art form and needs to be championed as such. Yeah, I love that feeling of going back to a movie every you know 
10 or 12 years right. or so, and, and in some cases thinking, I wonder if I'm going to like it this time. Like, I've never, I, I've never connected with this movie before, but somehow I think maybe this time will be, uh, I'll get it. And, and, or it'll be just be the right movie for me at the right moment in my life. And, you know, I always think that's a great gamble to take. Like, even if it doesn't pay off, I like trying. Who are you, like, who are the critics working now that you respect and read? Oh, wow. Well, I, I read, um, I read everybody. I, cause just cause I'm on the internet all day and I'm looking at stuff and I, I love finding someone, uh, but I like who is a resource sometimes. for you where you're like, that you know you you respect their opinion enough to to sort of rethink things. Um, Dana Stevens at Slate, I uh-huh. think she's a really interesting writer. Um, like I'm always curious to see what uh, Tony Scott and Manola Dargas have to say in the New York Times, even if I even if I disagree with someone. Mm-hmm. For, for me, uh, like the measure of an interesting critic is not whether I agree with them a lot or not, but but whether. It sparks an interesting argument right. in my head, right. and and so that's what I kind of look for in criticism. Is it is it a good um, is it is a good fight happening? Right. You know? Yeah. And what was your reaction to like? Cause, like I just did this monologue the other day about how you know all these award ceremonies and the 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 sort of the idea of nominating things for anything you know in what we're in right now just seems empty and sad somehow it's so strange like the golden globe nominations came out and and my and you know my whole crowd of people was fighting about the golden globes and i went on a podcast and was asked to talk about the the nominations and and i did and and all the while i was thinking i can't believe the golden globes are happening in this world right like right and i can't believe anyone is is devoting any energy to trying to win a Golden Globe or worrying about not getting nominated for a Golden Globe. It's just, like, in some ways it made me really happy that we could take a big break from everything that is insane and horrible in the world right now to talk about, you know, best supporting actress or whatever we're pissed off about at the Golden Globes. And in other ways, I genuinely cannot believe that there's going to be a Golden Globes uh, at the end of this month. Yeah, it's kind of you know? crazy. It's all kind of crazy to me. And I think that what we were talking about before and sort of where I was going when I spoke about the Golden Globes is that, you know, in the same way you and I were talking about how quickly things go, go by and how you have to grab onto things or or, or take the time to, to go a little deeper with things or, or figure out how to choose things is that, you know, the possibility that we get through this over the next, you know, six months, that there's not going to be any way to compartmentalize this time. We're not going to be able to dismiss this year or two years of, of, of what we went no. through. And, and for me, you know, I talk to creative people a lot. I talk to artists and comics and writers, you know, I I'm friendly with Tracy Letts and like, I, I know that there are people generating, but you know, it's going to be, you know, a sort of a staggering, hopefully staggering to see how people depict and integrate what we're going through now into art in the very near future because it's very hard to see anything now or to make anything but i wonder how this is going to be sort of processed and interpreted yeah i've been watching my husband for the last 10 months you know who obviously does something very different than i do he tries to create things you know he yeah. tries to create characters tries and and you know he's he gets asked all the time, like, oh, are you going to write a play about Donald Trump? Or are you going to, like, how how are you going to write uh, about this moment? And it, 
I know that it's something that he wrestles with a lot. It's like the question of even, should I try to write about this moment or should I go chase something else that, that means something to me? Do I have the, can I afford to do that right now? Or should I, you know, is it part of my job to try to contend with this exact moment right. in my writing? You know, yeah, because it's like, a hard thing. Well, yeah, you know, but you know what the, the weird thing about that is, is that, you know, it's relative to the outlet. You know, if if he's going to create something that he needs to workshop, when are you going to do that? Like, and 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 also, what about our, our our own denial? Like, you know, most of us are sort of like, I want this to end. You know, like not <laughs> you, you know not like you know how is this affecting me and my family and you know people I know and you know what is it doing? What is what is the damage? You know, because that's the idea. It's sort of like you know, do I just write uh, this musical? <laughs> Or right, <laughs> right. Or do I do I write something that carries the flag and fights the fight? Which you know sometimes you can do directly, but sometimes the the best stuff doesn't emerge from from you trying to kind of make your contribution to the greater cause. You know, it, it, sometimes it comes out of you just following your own passion, even if it's for something strange. Yeah. So, like, what are the other what what are the other movies that you liked this uh, that are you know being talked about? Did you watch uh, Judas and uh, the Black Messiah? Yeah, and that's a movie I'm really excited to tell people about. Um, I, I, just I thought that it. was yeah, ju- it was really powerful, and I didn't know much about uh, the the case at all going yeah. in or the story. Yeah. and um, I felt like a lot with a lot of these fact based movies, one of the really hard things to do is. Um, catch you up on what you need to know, um, the historical context and stuff, just give you enough going in so that you can race along with the story and with the characters. And I thought this movie did a really good job of that. It was amazing. And like, you just compare, it's so funny to me that like, I didn't know much of that story. I kind of knew obviously how it ended, but you know, that character at the core of this thing, the one that Stansfield played, is that his name? Uh, uh, yeah, Lakeith yeah, Lake- Stanfield. He, I love him. Stanfield. Yeah. You know, that that moral, you know, the lack, the, the strange moral compass, the idea that the protagonist of this film is the guy who's sort of like, I just care about me. I don't give a fuck about this. You know what I mean? I want to get out. You know, that that was who we're seeing this through was like, you know, profound and challenging and kind of amazing. And. But what I also like is that, you know, so many of these movies that they shoot about that time period, they always look silly, but there was no, they really got the time right. And I think it was because of, of a profound and uh, lack of white people. That white people <laughs> in those costumes of that era, it's, it's clown time. But for some reason, African-Americans you know, in the 60s always look great. <laughs> They're just like... Well, it's, it's funny because I always flinch when every costume looks like it just got dry cleaned and came off a hanger yeah. and it's perfect. Like no one has ever worn this before the second oh, yeah. you're seeing it. Yeah. And this, this movie did not have that. This movie, like it looked a little lived in and, and you know, that's pretty and great. The, and the, and it's just so weird. Cause you watch a Chicago seven movie and that thing, like it was like, you, there's no way you can, that it's just stop making movies about white people in the sixties. Because it just, there's no way you're going to over, you're not going to transcend those pants. You know, it's just. (laughs) I like the pants based theory of of the the trial of the Chicago 7. What other movies did you like? 
I really liked um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's super tough to adapt uh, plays yeah. to the screen. And I thought George Wolfe and, and that whole cast just did, they did a, a great fantastic job, job with that. Heavy, yeah. It's a heavy movie. Um, yeah. So that, it's a heavy movie, but um, so rewarding to just see those actors oh, working my together God, and the way they so work together, good. you know? Yeah. Like, that. that's why I love theater, you know, watching actors. Yeah. And, and and you don't often see that on screen, like a, a, a cast of people working that beautifully oh, together. Oh, so, Viola Davis? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, amazing. What a performance. Totally not like anything she's done. Oh, my God. So, so great. That's, that's what I really loved. What else have you liked? Yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, uh, what other, like, ones that I just watched on a screener. Like, I can't, like, see, this is the problem. You almost get, like, a... Like a like a, 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 a pandemic induced dementia, where you know days seem like weeks, and things just you know you watch something and it just disappears. I know. I used to remember when I was younger. I, I could, if you named a movie that I'd seen, I would remember exactly where I saw it. Yeah, like what theater, what night, and now to see everything at home and to be home all the time, it it is making it harder to give every movie like a, a clean, you know. Like wipe your slate clean and just try to yeah, watch. Yeah, because it. everything is sort of it's all uh, uh, framed as like, what can we do today to eat right. up this time? You know, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, I watched a uh, first cow. Oh yeah, I really like that movie. Um, like, it's kind of you know what's cool. Did you notice that there was like two people from McCabe and Mrs. Miller in there, and that you know that you know it's got that tone there's definitely a tip of the hat to that weird muddy mccabe and mrs miller altman thing going on uh, yeah i don't see how you can talk about that movie without using the word mud yeah like it's 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 a muddy movie there you know it's about dirt yeah um and living in dirt and being buried uh, in it literally yeah 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 that felt really honest and and you know like a, a tough movie to make and they really i believed it i believed those people in that world yeah you know, it, that's all i can it's add. so reminded me of mccabe and mrs miller just you saying this makes me want to go watch mccabe and mrs miller tonight oh you can always watch mccabe and mrs miller mccabe and mrs miller is one of my favorite movies i love it last time i watched it i watched it on um DVD and I watched it with subtitles, so like English subtitles, so that I could I'll catch everything. Hear every, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, it was great talking to you. Great talking to you too. And uh, do you feel like we covered everything for you? I I think so. I I mean I I love your show. I love that I had no idea where we were going to end up going. Um, it's it's like the most fun part of uh, listening to you, and and was the most fun part of doing this. Oh, good. Well, thanks for doing it, Mark, and thanks for writing the books. And I'm excited to sort of really dig in uh, to the Nichols book and also the Five uh, Came Back book. Uh, they sent they sent so me much. all the books, and I loved. Uh, picture of the revolution it really got my brain going again and very excited about film so i appreciate that i so appreciate it don't watch dr doolittle it's not fun <laughs> i'm gonna have to though <laughs> thanks for talking all right take care there you go the new book i, I love i i'm my brain is ignited mark harris's new book mike nichols a life you can get wherever you get books. You can get pictures out of Revolution. You can get his other book, the World War II book, uh, Five Came Back. Uh, great writer, thoughtful writer, very engaging. And um, I like doing episodes like this. We don't do them that often. And now let's drift away on some guitar 
sounds that I made. Thank you. 